we have to be honest and acknowledge the fact that governments are losing a little bit interest in human rights. It might be very important for the private sector to pick up where government left off. Welcome to Radio Free Utopia, the podcast about global LGBTI human rights. I'm your host, Ian Likas, and today we're heading to the United Nations to speak with Fabrice Houdart. Fabrice is a human rights officer at the United Nations working on LGBTI programs in the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. In this episode, Fabrice will discuss the brand new Global Business Standards of Conduct just released in late September by the UN Human Rights Office. These standards seek to support the global business community as it tackles discrimination against LGBTI people. On Radio Freak Utopia, most of our discussions so far have been with activists, artists, and others working to build a more inclusive world for LGBTI people from the grassroots up. When I heard about the release of the new UN Standards of Conduct, I thought it would be a terrific opportunity to talk about creating change from a different viewpoint and with somebody who has had a front row seat to studying the literal costs of discrimination against LGBTI people. So I reached out to Fabrice. Fabrice was at the heart of researching and developing the five principles guiding the standards of conduct. Those five principles are, one, respecting the human rights of LGBTI workers, customers, and the broader public. Second, eliminating workplace discrimination against LGBTI people. Three, actively supporting LGBTI employees at work. Four, preventing discrimination against customers, suppliers, and distributors. And five, standing up for LGBTI human rights in countries where you do business. These standards have already been endorsed by some of the most well-known multinational corporations in the world, including Accenture, Coca-Cola, Deutsche Bank, IKEA, Microsoft, SAP, and Spotify. You can find out more about the standards of conduct and more generally about the United Nations free and equal campaign to tackle homophobia and transphobia by going to unfe.org slash standards. Again, that's unfe.org slash standards. Before we get going, just a few reminders. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Radio Freak Utopia at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or through your favorite podcatcher. Follow Radio Freak Utopia on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please tell your friends about us. Now, here's my conversation with Fabrice. Uh, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, so, uh, so my name is Fabrice Dart. I work at the Office of Human Rights at the United Nations, and I particularly work on uh, LGBTI issues. So the United Nations has a global awareness campaign on the human rights of LGBTI people called Free and Equal. Mm-hmm. And then besides that, I particularly work with an initiative with the private sector, uh, which, is a, which is a translation of the Global Compact on Business and Human Rights. Uh, on LGBTI issues. And the idea is that, you know, uh, companies are increasingly aware that they have human rights responsibilities, uh, but they are not always aware that LGBTI issues are human rights, and they are not always aware of how they can be supportive of the human rights of LGBTI people. Uh, So I've been working for uh, a little more than a year and a half on standards of conduct for business on tackling discrimination against LGBTI people, and we just launched them in New York uh, last week, and uh, and this weekend I'm I'm leaving for uh, Philadelphia and then Mumbai and then Paris uh, for other launches. And uh, throughout the fall, I'm I'm kind of launching them all around the world. Can you tell us about the principles and how they came to be? 
You know, I think that there is an increasing understanding that uh, companies can play a key role in pushing the human rights agenda. And that, at the United Nations, it kind of started uh, around 2011 when the United Nations published um, the Global Compact and eventually uh, the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. Uh, so around around uh, January 2015, the High Commissioner on Human Rights uh, went to Davos uh, for the World Economic Forum and there was a side event on the role of the private sector in pushing uh, global LGBTI rights. And, uh, and what came out of this discussion is that a lot of companies, you know, increasingly, of course, particularly in the West and in Latin America, uh, but also in other parts of the world, like one of our key allies is in India, have uh, a desire to contribute to social change on those issues. They, they, you know, at, at minimum, they want to align their internal policies and practices with standards on human rights. Uh, but they also want to contribute to social change. And so, um, so the High Commissioner said, well, my, my office will work on developing uh, guiding principles for those companies um, to, to kind of, you know, it's basically an how-to guide on aligning your policies and practice with human rights of LGBTI people. And so, um, so we carried out consultations uh, for a year and a half. Uh, you know, I went to um, I went to Mumbai, I went to Kampala, I went to Brussels. Uh, I held consultation in uh, New York, and then we did a lot of virtual consultations with the private sector, with civil society, with trade unions, and so we came up with five uh, standards of conduct. Um, you know, two of them are very much related uh, to the workplace. Uh, you know, the other are related to the marketplace, which meaning, you know, your relationship with your customers, your relationship with your, uh, with your suppliers. And then, you know, in a way, the most ambitious one is the fifth principle, which is related to the role that companies play in the community. And uh, it's this that whenever companies have the opportunity, they should attempt at contributing to social change. I mean, you know, we are in a situation where today 73 countries criminalize homosexuality, uh, you know, that is a violation of human rights. And so if companies find opportunity as part of broader coalition or just by providing support to grassroots organizations to pave the way for, you know, the much needed legal changes in this area, uh, you know, that could be transformative. I think about how so much of the history of social change including but not limited to the LGBTI community, has been focused on governments, local governments, state governments, uh, obviously national governments, and thinking about what does, this is not by any means the first time that activists and other change makers have targeted the private sector and especially business, but sort of how can they, how can large corporations make a difference uh, in a way that's different from uh, governments? You know, one thing that is interesting is that in the United States, as an example, we have witnessed tremendous change in societal attitudes towards, you know, homosexuality, non-conforming gender identity, um, intersex characteristics, 
uh, and you know, particularly on homosexuality. Um, and you know, changes we actually could not really imagine. I mean, I moved to the United States in 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 two thousand. You know, I never believed for a minute that LGBTI people could marry by two thousand seventeen. Um, so we, we witness uh, huge change now. If you talk to people uh, in the United States, which I do sometimes, you know, to LGBTI activists, they are never really able to pinpoint what happened. They will give you a huge range of explanations. You know, some will tell you that Ellen DeGeneres did it all. Right? She came out on television, and that that was the beginning of. Uh, and then people said that uh, people coming out in the workplace had a tremendous role, meaning that having the the ability to have a conversation with a homosexual in your workplace, and you know, with a gay person in your workplace, um, kind of you know, was transformative. Um, in the way people experienced uh, homosexuality and, and their prejudice against homosexuality. And then other people will uh, will tell you that, you know, the Episcopalian church becoming more open about those issues also had a tremendous impact. Um, and so it's this idea, and, you know, of course, uh, people like Evan Wilson at Freedom to Marry will tell you that actually our strategy to push gay marriage is what led to this gigantic social change. So it's this idea that we don't really know mm-hmm. what is the recipe for social change. What we know is that societal change can have an incredible impact on the life of LGBTI people. They can go from leading an extremely hard life to living a life of dignity and opportunity. And so so, so there is an urgency to create societal change in places where discrimination against LGBTI people is prevalent. Um, so our point of view at the United Nations is that you should explore all the possible avenues. <coughs> like it's crucial to have a dialogue with, um, with religious leaders. It's also very important to ensure that even if you look at legal changes, you continue to look at the hearts and minds of the population. If you take the example of Nigeria, when they were considering the anti-homosexuality bill, there was a big discussion over the fact that more than 90% of the population was supporting this bill. I mean, when you have such high level of lack of awareness of the experience of LGBTI people, you need, you need to, you know, it's not enough to pursue legal changes. Uh, so similarly, you know, we view uh, we view the private sector as being one of the avenues that can contribute to much-needed societal change. Now, in a context, you know, in a difficult context where we have we have to be honest and acknowledge the fact that governments are losing a little bit interest in human rights. And you know, in my opinion, it's often the case in economic transition, which is that there's a pressure, you know, to look at internal issues and then global human rights kind of you know, become a secondary issue, which is, you know, which we don't consider as a good thing, but it's, it's kind of a reality. And so at the time where it becomes obvious that governments that kind of drove global societal change are going to take a step back, it might be very important for the private sector to pick up where government left off. Then, you know, one of, uh, one of the points that we make in the, in the standard of conduct, we, we reiterate the famous economic and business case for LGBTI inclusion. And what we, have, uh, what we have experienced over and over again 
is that sometimes the economic and business case that companies are very good at articulating is more powerful or more easy to hear than uh, the purely human rights issue. And, uh, and, you know, we have seen it in the case of, uh, of the recent uh, so-called bathroom bills in the United States, in which the private sector coalition of companies, you know, expressed their concern with those bills, you know, saying it makes, it makes it difficult for us to do business and, uh, and it doesn't align with our values and actually it doesn't align with our human rights responsibilities. And even though, you know, it might not always have immediately changed legislation, what we have observed is that other states that might have been considering similar legislation thought, you know, we don't want to find ourselves in, in, you know, in conflict with our private sector. And so they didn't push the legislation. There's this idea that the private sector has an incredible power that is yet to be tapped into. And, you know, it's, it's in their interest to fight discrimination, but it's also their responsibility. You know, uh, we, we talk a little bit in the, in the report about the famous Sullivan principles in South Africa, you know, which, which said that if you are a company in apartheid South Africa, you cannot just wait for social change to happen. You do have to contribute in any way you can to ensure that human rights are respected. Well, those are great examples. I hadn't ever thought about the connection between the Sullivan principles and the modern LGBTI uh, movement, but that that's really thought provocative. You also usefully we are usefully bring up the examples of say North Carolina and its bathroom bill legislation in Texas, uh, Indiana's liber religious liberty bill, and the ways that private sector opposed legislation. What examples of similar dynamics are we seeing outside the United States, as perhaps especially outside the global north? Well, you know, we, we see a lot of companies taking uh, individual actions to push for social change, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, very courageously. Um, you know, so, so a good example is, you know, HSBC in Hong Kong that, that has two famous lions in front of its building and they painted it in a rainbow color for pride. Mm. And, you know, the, you know, some people in Hong Kong were shocked and, and felt that, you know, it was uh, pushing, uh, you know, Western values um, in Hong Kong. Uh, but a lot of people applauded it as a courageous stance by HSBC uh, for LGBTI people. Then similarly, you know, you remember when Uganda uh, pushed its uh, famous anti-homosexuality uh, uh, anti bill, Richard Branson of Virgin, you know, went public and said, uh, you know, I was considering Uganda as a place to, uh, to invest, and, uh, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not looking at it anymore. Uh, but, but what we have found is, uh, is the most effective, and which is taking place in many places of the world, is coalitions of companies that are having a dialogue with government lawmakers, uh, you know, and we have seen that in Singapore, uh, we have, you know, where there is tremendous support from local organization for the Pink Dot Festival. Um, so we, uh, you know, we, we, we see this uh, uh, increasingly, you know, ING turning its, uh, its ATMs in rainbow colors. Uh, uh, so we see we see we see the we see companies taking more and more steps to act in the public sphere 
uh, in support of the human rights of LGBTI people. Um, now, you, you know, the, the, the spirit of the principle is that the private sector is finding its voice on the issue of human rights of LGBTI people. And, and we are not calling for the private sector to indiscriminately uh, start calling for decriminalization of homosexuality. You know, first of all, it would not be efficient. Mm -hmm. And second of all, it would probably not be successful. And it could actually backlash. And we repeat throughout the, throughout the, the report that companies should as much as possible consult with local LGBTI groups and build a relationship with local LGBTI groups. And it, it's particularly important because it will help them figure out where they are the most useful and where they can have an impact. Uh, and, and we have seen in the past cases of uh, well-known companies thinking that they were, you know, with good intention, taking an action which was actually not really contributing to the dialogue on those issues uh, in, the, in the specific country. Um, and, you know, it doesn't take much for a company to invite the local LGBTI groups to a discussion and start building that relationship of how can we be useful? You know, can you help guide our internal diversity and inclusion initiatives? Um, and so in the, in the global south, uh, those are kind of the starting point, which is, uh, you know, in places that are, that are hostile to LGBTI people, the first step for companies should be to build this relationship with local LGBTI groups and figure out what small steps they can take to contribute to the to the push for social change, and I think yeah, we we talked about it in for a bit. I want to sort of just bring back attention to how important the workplace is. You know, when we talk about the importance of coming out, so much of that can be you know sort of generally about oh, come out to your friends, come out to your family. Sort of coworkers are on a laundry list, but sort of how central that moment is, given how much of our life is spent in workplaces. And so it's particularly interesting to hear about how the principles uh, emphasize uh, combating uh, discrimination and promoting inclusion in the workplace and how important that is as a global story, again, for audiences that may be used to sort of more uh, U.S.-centered uh, experiences or stories or uh, perspectives. Yeah, and, you know, there's, there's two principles on the workplace, and one of them, you know, one of them is, is, uh, is called... Um, eliminating discrimination in the workplace, which basically is mostly about policies mm -hmm. and ensuring that, the, that policies are treating LGBTI and non-LGBTI employees the same way. But then the second principle is about providing support, which is this idea of inclusion. Um, you can have extremely uh, good policies in place and yet uh, have a majority of your staff that tells you that they're uncomfortable coming out in the workplace. What, what we have seen over and over again is that it's not enough to have the right policies. You know, there's many other things that need to be in place for LGBTI people to have a chance at being authentic in the workplace and to have a chance of reaching their full potential. And that includes, you know, uh, statements by leadership on inclusion. That includes having an employee resource group. You know, those are steps that companies might think are superfluous, but they are actually necessary to have a true 
non-discriminatory environment. You know, my personal experience is that I went to India in 2012. I was working for another organization, and our second largest office was in Chennai. And so I came to the office in Chennai to make a presentation on, on our, you know, uh, non-discrimination policy. And I was, you know, it was exclusively 100% local staff. And I was, when I was welcomed, they said, you know, we really appreciate you coming, but we don't have gay people in the, in the workplace. And, uh, and so I said, well, you know, uh, you know, that's still important for us to, to explain our policies. And, and then we got, we jump on a call with Google, uh, with the office in Bangalore. And, and the person in the office in Bangalore said, you know, when we share our uh, policies on diversity and inclusion, uh, you know, we do not really care whether we have LGBTI employees or not. What we want is for our employees to understand that our global brand is a brand of diversity and inclusion. Mm. And uh, so anyway, so I did my presentation and then, uh, and then I was reached out by one of our staff on Facebook that said, listen, I didn't want to talk to you during the presentation, but I'm from Calcutta and I'm gay and I really appreciated you coming. And, and you know, eventually that staff, uh, came out in the office and he, uh, he volunteered, you know, at the local LGBTI film festival and he created a chapter of our uh, employee resource group in Chennai, which has a few members. And it's this idea that sometimes, you know, companies that, that stand for local LGBTI rights in, uh, in, uh, in New York mm-hmm. might not have made the effort of uh, of translating it into the different countries where they have operations. Because, you know, the local management might not find it very relevant. And, you know, that's kind of a minimal effort to do. If you have a, non, a diversity and inclusion policy to, un, to make sure that it's, uh, that it's applied in all of your country offices and that it's known in all of your country offices and, and make that effort. And the standard definitely, um, definitely calls for that. Great. Um, and you know, sort of talking about your experience, I mean, it strikes me that your career, you've sort of gone from work grounded in combating poverty, which LGBTI people endure around the world in very disproportionate numbers, to working with big business, uh, to working with global multinational corporations to combat discrimination. How does that trajectory, I, I strongly suspect that it makes sense to you, but could you tell us about how it makes sense? You know, I, I actually, my, my first interest was in diversity and inclusion, you know, in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then because I was in an organization that looked at poverty, you know, I am convinced that very often extreme, po- particularly extreme poverty, is linked to human rights violation. Mm-hmm. You always find underneath the violation of the human rights of people. And they're kind of trapped in poverty because they have no agency, because they have no uh, voice, and, and you need to respond to that question. So I am, I am somewhat convinced that LGBTI people do not benefit equally from development efforts. I mean, and sometimes they are actually experiencing development in reverse gear. You know, what, what it means is that if there is a microfinance project, People that display feminine characteristics or that are already marginalized in society might actually not have access to those uh, to this capital. You know, there is a need to make sure in the development project that we are very clear that 
people with uh, different sexual orientation or non-conforming gender identity have the same right to access the phone as the rest of the population. If we don't make that effort, there is a big chance that LGBTI people will not benefit from those development projects. So I argued that we should start looking at what is the experience of LGBTI people in developing countries and kind of try to cater, cater our efforts to them so they benefit equally from development efforts. And that governments are not discriminating against them when, uh, when, uh, when you know, spending um, uh, development funds. So then logically, uh, I ended up working more and more on, uh, in particular, on the cost of homophobia. And, you know, I, I got a grant from Nordic countries to uh, launch a first uh, study on the cost of homophobia, which I subcontracted to uh, Lee Budget of the Williams Institute. We did a great job at uh, putting a, a kind of a, a back of the napkin number on the cost of homophobia in India. And then... Um, and then we also did a socioeconomic survey of LGBTI people in India. And, uh, and then I got the opportunity to work with the UN uh, Human Rights Office on those questions. And, um, and because of my experience in, uh, in development and my experience in, uh, in, uh, in working with the, with the private sector previously, it kind of made sense for me to work on this issue. Um, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm certain that... LGBTI people in most parts of the world are not reaching their full potential. And, uh, you know, economically, uh, personally, uh, they live a third of the life that they are intended to live. And, you know, we can see it in urban, uh, in urban areas in the United States or in urban areas in uh, uh, South America or Europe that are more inclusive in which LGBTI people are striving. You know, they're able to uh, they're able to contribute to society. They're able to play a key role uh, as citizens, and they are succeeding in creating business, in contributing uh, uh, to um, to many you know ventures. And it's it's just such a crazy self-inflicted economic wound, which is only motivated by prejudice, without any basis and. You know, at the end of, of the day, you, you ask yourself, why do we, as humankind, go at such great lengths to make sure that an entire segment of our population has no chance of realizing the potential of their lives? It, it's, um, you know, it's a personal loss, which is tragic, but it's also an economic and societal loss, uh, which is gigantic. And so we should put all of our efforts to accelerate social change so we put an end to unfair discrimination. Many listeners here in the United States, well, we have listeners around the world, but thinking for many American listeners who are not accustomed to talking about the connection between human rights and human development, this will be an invaluable uh, conversation starter to sort of look at the that direct connection between economic opportunity and the ability to fully participate in your society. Uh, certainly even thinking about how microfinance projects are geared towards um, you know, traditional gender roles, heterosexual marriage, etc., uh, thinking about what does this mean for people in non-traditional uh, relations in non with uh, you know, 
non-normative gender identities. Yeah, I'll give you another interesting example. You know, when you have when you have a disaster in many parts of the world, mm-hmm. uh, and there is rations, they will give the ration to the woman in the household, and the reason is because the woman in the household tend to be, you know, studies have shown that they tend to be uh, more responsible, you know, and we have seen in microfinance that very often women reimburse their loans at a higher rate than men. So, you know, they have this practice of giving the ration to the head of the household, um, to the woman in the household. And, um, and as a consequence, gay couples are obviously excluded from, uh, from, you know, disaster relief. So, of course, you know, it doesn't, uh, not many men in, the, in, in, you know, places that are affected by disaster uh, are in a same-sex relationship. But if they are, they are excluded from, disa- from, uh, from disaster relief. And, uh, and that's, you know, at some point we have to stop that. We have to take in consideration the fact that same-sex couples should receive the exact same treatment than the rest of the population. I'm certainly hoping to do some interviews in the near future to talk specifically about that disaster relief issue, given what has happened so recently in the Caribbean. Well, people have, people, LGBTI people have specific needs, and, and it, it's, you know, it's blind to not look at them. And very often, as an example, we have seen, and, you know, it would be interesting to look at it in the case of Puerto Rico, as an example, we have seen that transgender people tend to create a safe space for themselves in which they are known in the neighborhood, and the neighborhood is kind of watching out for them. Uh, in a context where they have to go to a refuge, or they have to leave temporarily the neighborhood because uh, it has been uh, destroyed, you know, their safety and their well-being is, uh, is at risk, you know. And, uh, and if, you, if you don't have that on your radar screen, your disaster relief plan might might actually not uh, not uh, succeed with transgender people. I'm struck by how everything you say is so important. It's a non-traditional path, you know, for many activists to take the path you have. How did you end up working on these issues in the way in in the forums you have? You know, I, I joined the, uh, the World Bank uh, when I was 23, and I was in the closet for, uh, for a few years, or at least, you know, I was not out to most of my colleagues, but I was always a member of the uh, LGBTI Employee Resource Group, um, which was called GLOBE. And, you know, and then as time went by, I took, you know, responsibilities, and I became treasurer, and then vice president, and eventually I became president of the group. And when I was uh, president of the group, uh, I had this opportunity to start thinking about the interconnection between sexual orientation, gender identity, and development. And, um, and so I worked increasingly on this topic, and, you know, maybe in 2010, when I started working on it, there wasn't that much appetite, uh, but appetite grew to the point that now the World Bank has a senior advisor on sexual orientation and gender identity. And the World Bank has carried out, since we did that first study in, in, uh, in India, the World Bank has carried out many studies on the cost of homophobia. And, you know, currently it's working on, uh, on an LGBTI index, which is looking at the performance of countries on uh, various uh, inclusion, LGBTI inclusion uh, criteria. So, 
So things have changed a lot. And we have seen almost every international organization is now working a little bit on this topic. It used to be a taboo topic. And people would find it frivolous, right? Why would you work on sexuality when we are in the serious business of looking at microeconomic stability, you know, or poverty reduction? You know, sexuality is a luxury for, uh, for rich people, right? Uh, but I think, you know, that point of view has changed. And also, what, what, is, what, is, uh, what is unbelievable is that 10 years ago, you could deny the existence of LGBTI people in many places of the world, right? You could say, we don't have gay people. And actually, some head of states used to come at the United Nations and say, we don't have gay people. Now, nobody would ever say that. Because, you know, everywhere in the world, there is LGBTI groups. And, um, and we start to have data that shows that same-sex attraction, uh, non-conforming gender identity is, pre- is prevalent at the same level in almost every country, you know, in every country of the world. Uh, when I was working at the World Bank, one time I brought uh, Google uh, to make a presentation on uh, metadata analysis. And what they showed is that there's a survey that, that showed that search for gay porn themes, gay porn, you know, um, uh, search terms, was about the same all around the world. And, you know, it's extremely telling. Of course, you know, in countries where there is uh, a lot of censorship on the internet, you would see a slight dip, but but you would pretty much see the same uh, prevalence all over the world, and you know uh, uh, that's that's extremely telling. Now there's another very interesting, uh, completely unrelated uh, study that showed that in the United States, in the states that are the least supportive of LGBTI people, the prevalence of the search term "Is my husband gay?" was much higher. <laughs> okay, that's and, uh, fascinating. And, and, and basically, you know, LGBTI people is one of the least studied group of people in the world. And I have experienced it when we did that socioeconomic uh, survey in India. It's extremely difficult and costly to start gathering data on LGBTI people, you know, because obviously you cannot go from one door to another and, and say, you know, are you gay and would you mind, you know, responding to a few questions on whether you own a refrigerator. You, you, you basically have to go through community organization to reach out gay people and you tend to be stuck in urban or peri-urban areas with people that identify as LGBTI. Uh, so it's very difficult to get uh, data, but every time we get a little bit of data, it's pretty amazing because it ends, you know, it, it, it rebukes a lot of myths. Like the myth that, you know, LGBTI people are more prevalent in the north than in the south, that LGBTI people are rich, you know, uh, you know, data shows that that's not the case. There is the same prevalence of homosexuality and non-conforming gender identity all around the world. And LGBTI people tend to have lower socioeconomic uh, outcomes which is obvious because discrimination takes a huge toll on your finance and your economic opportunities. And, uh, and you basically have to pay a high price to protect yourself from discrimination. And I think the data, I would presume that the data is even harder to collect for by trans and intersex individuals than it is for gay and lesbian. It depends which part of the world, right? As an example, in India, you know, as you know, uh, transgender people sometimes 
tend to be more publicly out than uh, than gay men, right? Mm. So, in a way, sometimes it's easier to obtain data. Mm. And what's interesting is that in Southeast Asia, the government is actually trying. The government has acknowledged the fact that there is discrimination against transgender people and is taking steps to try to remedy to it. You know, um, so there was a really good article in the New York Times about Pakistan, which showed that the government of Pakistan is giving opportunities to transgender people to work in tax collection. Mm. It's a way to remedy the fact that you know, they do not have access to many economic opportunities. And then, because of the history of uh, transgender people in uh, Pakistan, they actually have a bit of an authority when they collect taxes. You know, there is that fear that they might give you a curse, and therefore you do pay your taxes when they come to collect it. Uh, so that's the other aspect which is interesting when you, when you, when you start getting uh, funds to get a better understanding of the situation of LGBTI people globally, is that you discover that different countries have different issues. And the drivers of homophobia or transphobia tend to be different from one part of the world to the other. Um, so, you know, in my opinion, we should, we should invest much more in trying to understand what is the experience of LGBTI people and how we can remedy uh, we can remedy to it. And, and it has also been my experience that when talking to lawmakers and governments, when you have data to back your, uh, your, your assessment that LGBTI people are discriminated against, uh, it's much more powerful. So it's a bit of a, uh, a catch-22, right? You need the data to, you know, have uh, political action, uh, but without political action, it's difficult to get funds to collect the data. And so uh, we kind of have to break that cycle. You, you bring up important stuff about sort of, for example, in some ways, the battle for trans rights is progressing, accelerating in South and Southeast Asia, per, um, perhaps more than the uh, campaigns for gay and lesbian or gay lesbian bi rights in large part because trans people, at least trans women, are more culturally recognizable with traditional gender diversity. Um what other signs of you know progress do you see in this way outside the global north? Um, I mean, we talked about you know, talking about business. We're starting to say again some businesses. You mentioned businesses in at least one big partner in India. Uh, you mentioned HBSC in Hong Kong. What other places are we looking at progress outside of uh, North America and Western Europe? I mean, you know, first of all. Latin America is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my 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 boss, uh, you, you know, often often point out the fact that the the driver behind a lot of resolution of the Human Rights Council and a lot of discussion on LGBTI people tend to be Latin American countries. I mean, you know, that's a huge shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, and then you have. Uh, you know, we just we just wrote that Malta is uh, is kind of the gold star of uh, of legal um, uh, of uh, of legal framework for LGBTI people. Uh, it's kind of an unexpected country. You know, it's a country that is right at the border of the of the Mediterranean, and and you know that's the, that's the driver when you when you look at legal uh, supportive legal framework. Uh, that's that's a very advanced country. 
Um, so, you know, we might have this assumption that the United States, uh, uh, France, or the United Kingdom are the most advanced, but it's actually not completely true. And I, you know, the United States, you can still get fired for your, you don't have protection, um, you know, based on your sexual orientation in many states, let alone, you know, transgender people or intersex people. So, uh, you know, urban America uh, is pretty magical. You know, I, I happen to live in New York and I raise two children and uh, and it's pretty amazing to never have to think about your sexual orientation as being, you know, uh, as being an issue. And to not think of your family as being threatened or, or you know, or at risk in school. That's, uh, but that's, that's not all of the United States. And then similarly, you know, I'm going to France next week uh, France, uh, France has a pretty good legislative framework now, but there is still high levels of homophobia. You know, there has been a rise in incidents uh, of violence against LGBTI people, and then inclusion in the workplace remains a gigantic issue. You know, and that's definitely something I would love to talk about uh, when I'm going to go there uh, next week. Um, you know, what is what is the most striking for me is that wherever you go in the world, you will find an LGBTI grassroots movement. You know, in Burundi, there is one. You know, I mean, when I used to work in the Great Lakes at the beginning of my career, I would never have imagined that there was uh, an LGBTI group in Burundi. And there is. And it's actually, you know, uh, pushing for legal changes. Then similarly, there is initiative with the private sector in Kenya. You know, uh, uh, Kenyan activists are bringing together businesses to see how they can be supportive of the human rights of LGBTI people. Um, so you see, you see progress in almost every part of the world. Then you know, you also see horrendous backlash, and in particular, violence, and you know, even mass human rights violation like we have observed in Chechnya uh, this year. Uh, that's extremely worrying. But that's also a sign, unfortunately, that that change is happening. Because with greater visibility of LGBTI people, there is always that uh, there's always that pushback, which sometimes is horrifying. But it's also a sign that those discussions are happening everywhere. Um, and so we, 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 you know, we still have we still have a long way to go in many places of the world. Uh, but something that, that to me is striking is that when I grew up, I had no idea that you could lead a life of dignity and opportunity as someone with same-sex attraction. You know, the difference is that today, most people, a lot of people that have same-sex attraction, have access to the media, and so they know that if they could only get to a more tolerant and favorable environment, they would be able to lead a life of dignity and opportunity. And that creates a lot of despair for people that cannot leave, which tend to be, you know, lower middle class people or people that do not speak English, you know, that do not have the opportunity to migrate. Um, and also it puts migration pressure because people that have the means to migrate tend to leave. And, you know, migration is never a happy journey. You know, it's always a painful journey. It can end up well. But for a lot of people, being uprooted from their community is a painful experience. So there is an urgency that did not exist before. We cannot wait 
another 50 years for societal change because there is people that are in deep suffering in you know uh, secondary cities uh, that that experience same-sex attraction that even identify as LGBTI, but that are unable to be in a loving relationship, that are unable to be out at work, and that know that their life is always going to be maimed by discrimination. Um, so in my opinion, there is much more urgency today than there was uh, when I was growing up. Great. I'm sure you're winding down on your t the time you have available at this point, um, but that sort of segues into... I mean, you've to some degree even partially answered this, but what is it, you know, how has this become such a personal mission? Why is this so personally important for you? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to not be politically correct for a minute, and I, and I will tell you, I, you know, I was, born in, I was born in privilege, right? I was born a white man in France, in, you know, a family that had a little bit of money, and, uh, and I think that, I never really expected to experience discrimination, right? I didn't experience it growing up. I experienced privilege, the contrary of discrimination. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so when I uh, when I first experienced discrimination because of my sexual orientation, you know, I, I was told by my father that you know being gay would have you know I had to hide it because it would have a very negative impact on my career. Uh, I you know I felt sometimes uh, the stigmatization from society. Um, you know, I, I felt a little bit the burden of discrimination, much less than most LGBTI people in the world. But it, it kind of revolted me, you know, and, uh, and I think I have less tolerance for injustice than people that have experienced discrimination all of their lives. You know, for me, discrimination was unexpected. And, uh, and when it came, I, uh, I, was, I was pretty shocked. So, so I'm very passionate about, and I also don't really see the point of it, you know, the more the more I experience what it is to be a man with some sex attraction and the more I realize that there is no reason to punish it, to punish us or to, uh, or to uh, limit our uh, capacity to enjoy life. So, and it seems to be also such an easy change for humankind. You know, let, let just go, let go of prejudice and, and let people reach their potential. Are there any questions I didn't ask that you wish I had asked? No, you know, I, I really appreciate you taking the time, and also I really appreciate your your interest in the standouts. You know, we are really hoping that uh, that is going to be uh, contribute to changing the the global situation, and that companies are going to to step up their game. Yeah, terrific. Well, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Fabrice. You can follow him on Twitter at hudartun. That's at h o u d. A-R-T-U-N. Again, you can read more about the standards and about free and equal at unfe.org slash standards. A link to that in the episode notes as well. There's lots of good stuff to come in the weeks and months ahead as Radio Freak Utopia tackles breaking news around the world and as I work to make this a better and better podcast for all of you listening out there. So please take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been enjoying Radio Freak Utopia, please leave us a review. Seriously, it makes a big difference in terms of getting this podcast in front of people who might enjoy it. My huge thanks to RF Davidos for this review. Radio Freak Utopia is amazing. 
It has introduced me to bold, energetic activists in the LGBTI community about whom I didn't know, and the podcast interviewing offers ample time to learn about each guest's contributions and body of work, and gives them a chance to share their vision and perspective on their activism. Thanks, David Ose. All right, that's it for this week. We'll be back shortly with a new episode. Look forward to talking with you all shortly.